The Lord came and stood there, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. The Church of St. Cecilia in the Trastevere neighborhood of Rome houses a remarkable sculpture. Remarkable both for its artistry and power, and also for the story behind it. Located at the altar of the church, the sculpture by the artist Stefano Moderno is a depiction of the saint, Cecilia. She lived and died as a martyr sometime early in the third century. And the church was reputedly built at the location of her home and burial later that century. If you fast forward some 1,300 years, at the end of the 16th century, the church was being renovated, Cecilia's tomb under the altar was opened. And it is claimed that her body was found there, totally uncorrupted, untouched by decay, some 13 centuries after her death. The sculpture, which we have a photo of here, is Moderno's representation of her pristine body. I have no idea about the veracity of this claim about Cecilia's body. Though I quite like the idea of her lying there so long, just waiting as an expression of God's ongoing practical joke on death. But the question is somewhat immaterial from the power of the sculpture. To me, in this statue, Cecilia is this perfect glimpse of repose before God, a picture of trust, the work is remarkably lifelike. She is fragile, she is small, and she is still. It's an image for me of relinquishment, of trusting in the Lord's care, provision, and protection unto death and even beyond. I find the sculpture breathtaking, and I long that my own life would be marked by the same trust and rest in the Father that I see captured here. Today is the second week in our Thanks Be to God campaign, where last week's focus was upon Thanksgiving, understanding our participation to be rooted in gratitude for what God has done, our generosity springing forth out of our sense of gratitude for Christ. Our emphasis today is upon the role of prayer. And the principle is that our participation, our acts of generosity related to this initiative, but in the whole of life, are best revealed in prayer, in dialogue with the Holy Spirit. As we collectively call upon the Lord to reveal to us his desires for us in this season, we can be assured of his leading and that his provision will be sufficient for the needs, the opportunities we have. As your priest, as one of the primary spokespeople for this campaign, articulating the needs, the goals, I want to emphasize that the primary, the most basic ask is that each of us would enter into this season prayerfully. Beyond the financial goals, what will bode well for our life together is that we grow and increase as a people who seek the face of God, who commit to discern his will, that live, we might say, in conversational relationship with Jesus through the Spirit, that take on a posture in the whole of our lives, like that of St. Cecilia. 
I think that kind of posture, that kind of life, is exemplified in our reading this morning from the Old Testament. In our text, the young boy Samuel utters the phrase, here I am, four times, before he is then directed by Eli to say to God, speak, for your servant is listening, which is when you think about it, simply another way of saying, here I am. In the moments we have together this morning, I want to use that phrase, here I am, as a lens through which we can better see the life of prayer I believe God is calling us to collectively and personally in this season. I'm going to group our thinking, our, my time, around three headings. Here I am as an expression of confidence. Here I am as an expression of trust. And finally, here I am as an expression of availability. So confidence, trust, and availability. First, an expression of confidence. The words that are translated in our text as here I am can be literally rendered in the original language as simply behold me. This is what Samuel says when he awakes, when he approaches Eli. And taken out of context, that phrase carries with it some strong theater kid kind of energy, right? Behold me, and then like jazz hands or something like that. <laughs> this kind of precocious, naiveness, bold perspective, right? You're going to love me. That's not exactly the kind of confidence I believe God is calling us to. But there is this godly invitation to be bolder than we might consider. Bolder than we might consider appropriate in our life of prayer. Samuel, in 1 Samuel 3, is confused about who it is that is calling him, and partly for some very good reasons. He's not a priest. In the religious system of his time in which he is serving, he would not be the one to be expected to hear from God. His role was to attend to the ones who heard from God, Eli and the other priests. As verse 7 puts it, he didn't yet know the Lord. The, the word of the Lord hadn't yet been revealed to him. That's communicating in some way he wasn't qualified. So often we do not feel qualified. We might pray, we might participate in religious life, we might believe in God, but the sense that God might be inviting us into more intimate conversation, into ongoing dialogue feels remote. That's for others. That's for people with a keener mystical sense or with greater personal piety or just more time on their hands. For holier people, for deacons and priests or bishops. That kind of perspective relies upon a vision of life that is informed by elitism. That there are the chosen few and they have the license to listen for God. They have a license to enter into intimacy with him and the rest of us have to work for a living. But a clear implication of our reading this morning is that God is free and unencumbered. That he speaks to whom he wills. And he chooses here not to speak to Eli, the high priest, the conventional hearer of God's word. Rather, he chooses to speak to Samuel who's by every measure too young, not learned enough, not yet equipped. In this, in the word of God to Samuel, I hear an invitation for us. In the midst of where we are, in the midst of too busy and haggard lives, an invitation to respond and engage with the living God. 
you are invited. You're called just as you are in the midst of your life as it is, in the midst of your everyday life. You're invited whether you have that keen sense of God's presence or not, whether you live with a particular sensitivity to the transcendent, the spiritual or not. In the person of Jesus Christ, God has spoken to his creation, to all of us, to you. And he is God's clearest and most direct word. The communication of himself, inviting response, inviting you to be found, to say, here I am. And in Christ, we have confidence. We have confidence that we've been given access into places where we're not qualified to be. In him, we've been ushered into the very life of God, into relationship with him, such that God welcomes you, not as you might be, not at your best, but as you are in the warp and woof of life, tired and impatient, fearful and too busy to offer your prayers, your cares, your concerns, your petitions to him. This is what the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans 5. In Jesus, we have access. In Ephesians 3, in Christ, we may approach God with boldness, with confidence, with some of that theater kid energy. He's going to love you. This is what we have a glimpse of in the Psalms. Unvarnished, bold human speech, not dressed up, not couched, but direct, confident in our place before God. Through Christ, God is inviting you and I into this kind of engagement. In most dating relationships, there's that moment where you must decide to move from putting your best foot forward to simply being yourself. Where you stop dressing up before you see the person and where you simply are in all your glory and all your shame. I don't know when that's supposed to happen. There's not like this clear demarcation point. There's no manual. But whether it's like the third date or the wedding night, that happens where you have to say to one another, behold me. (laughs) And it's this fraught moment. Will I be accepted? Will I be invited in? Will the relationship we have forged endure this level of intimacy, this level of knowledge? In Christ, you have already entered in to that deeper stage of intimacy. So you can, with confidence, with boldness, say, here I am to a living and holy God. You can stand there without pretense, without fear, secure in your acceptance, confident, with confidence, saying, here I am, all of me. Related to this idea of confidence is, of course, the notion of trust. Here I am as an expression of trust. In our cultural moment, there is a renewed interest in practices of meditation or mindfulness. There has been study after study showing the value for our brains and our bodies of simply being still and quiet, of disengaging from our screens and our tasks. It seems to me that these practices, the apps related to them, and the clear value they have, they're like an expression of common grace, right? A part of the way God has made us all, made us to flourish. But those practices of mindfulness and meditation, as valuable as they may be, as positive as they may be, are distinct from the life of prayer as the Christian tradition has it. Samuel, in our reading, is not invited to be present to the universe. 
but to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And Jesus, in our reading from Luke, doesn't withdraw to be like with his inner self. He draws to attend to his Father. What we are talking about when we speak of prayer in the Christian tradition is engagement with a particular person. The person of God, the Father of Jesus, revealed to the nation of Israel in history. There is this personal relational dimension that goes beyond just the intrinsic value of stillness or quiet. And that dimension then relates to notions of trust. To say, here I am before a particular person requires trust that they will be for your good, that they are safe, that they are competent to receive you. This is whom Jesus knows the Father to be. Jesus exemplifies this posture of trust throughout his earthly ministry up to the point of death and beyond. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke 22, is able to say, here I am. Here is all that I am and all that I ever will be, wholly and completely to the Father. Your will, not mine, whatever the pain, whatever the suffering. He's able to accept his own personal destruction because of his absolute trust in the character and competency of his Father. That kind of trust does not come very easily to me. That kind of trust does not come very easily to us. We're reluctant to entrust ourselves to others, some of us for very good reasons. We've been hurt, our moments of vulnerability exploited far too often in the name of Jesus. Or perhaps we have a sense of our compromised, the ways that we are marked by shame and guilt. There are parts of ourselves that we are convinced were they to be drawn into the light would mean our rejection, would mean that they would be used against us. It's striking to me that Samuel must have to learn. Samuel has to learn how to say, here I am to God. He must learn to respond to the call of God. In some fashion, he must learn how to pray. It does not come naturally. He must be instructed not to qualify like God has already spoken to him, but in order to fruitfully respond, he must be guided. One of the gifts that we have in the Anglican tradition is the treasure trove of scriptural prayers and responses compiled in the Book of Common Prayer. They're not magic words, words that particularly are pleasing to God that we kind of get them right and they unlock some secret. But they are words that have literally sustained Christians for hundreds and even in some cases thousands of years that Christians have found fruitful and meaningful in presenting themselves before God in Christ. As we take them up, as we utilize them, we are learning the script, the script of grace, the ways of responding to God's call upon us, learning to say, here I am. During this season, we on Thursdays are here and in midday prayer online, praying morning and evening prayer. We're praying the daily office together. And the best way, I think, to think of those services of prayer is not so much as like, oh, what am I getting out of this or how am I going to draw from this, but to consider them as an offering up in this structured way your time, your day, right? Through confession of sin and confession of faith, through the reading of Scripture, through these written prayers and these moments of, of casting our individual cares before God, a way of 
offering up our lives as they are to the Lord in trust, trusting that he will meet us there, that he's called us to himself. Even more striking than Samuel's need to be instructed is when and by whom he is instructed in 1 Samuel 3. The language in the opening verses about the rareness of the Lord's word, about Eli's poor eyesight, and the lamp of the Lord not yet gone out, they all suggest this situation, this circumstance of dimness, of decline. Eli is a compromised person as the high priest. That's the message Samuel will receive in the verses that follow our reading. Judgment upon Eli and his sons for their compromise, for their corruption. And that failure comes in the context of this larger situation where God's voice is increasingly absent. The people of God are directionless, without vision, without life. And it's in that situation of spiritual deterioration, of moral compromise, that Samuel receives the word of God. And unexpectedly, in that situation, he learns to respond. That is an incredibly hopeful, trust-building thing. Whatever the external realities, whatever the compromise, the decay we see, and we live in a time when the failures of the people of God are being revealed, Yet, it seems to me the message of the word of the Lord for us today is that God is still speaking, is still calling, is still inviting a response, and is even still forming a people of faithful response. This is God's uninterrupted intention and work in history. The word for Eli is judgment. That comes after a long Decade-long kind of ignoring, ignoring of God's word. And Eli receives judgment. But that does not mean that God has stopped speaking. That he is still, it doesn't mean that he is no longer reaching out to his people, calling them to himself. In our reading, the voice calls out, Samuel, Samuel. But in the beginning, in the, the garden of Genesis, the voice calls out to Adam and Eve, where are you? Not to destroy, not to condemn, but to care. And in the garden again, at the end, the voice calls to Mary, the garden of resurrection. In that moment, she hears her name called and she sees the Lord in glory. She sees his triumph. Through history, God is calling to his people faithfully, with kindness, with compassion for our good. And God is still at work forming people a faithful response, working even through imperfect means to accomplish his purposes in us, that we might respond in trust. Here I am. Here we are. Notice the persistence of the Lord with Samuel. Notice his patience. Notice the way the, the reading crescendos in verse 10. The Lord, it says, finally there, came and stood there drawing near. Out of love, out of desire for Samuel, the Lord persists in winning Samuel to himself. So is God at this very moment doing with you, calling to us in Scripture, through one another, drawing near to us in Christ at this table by the power of his Holy Spirit. Whatever has happened in the past, whatever opportunities have been missed, still he is calling after you. 
So you can entrust yourself to him. You can respond however weak, however vulnerable you feel. However uncertain about yourself, your station in life, behold me, knowing that he's for you, that he longs to know and be known. You can entrust yourself to him. In that context of confidence and trust that we have in the character of God, we can say, here I am, as an expression of availability. Patrick Waugh is a, a very famous Canadian. For many years, he was a goaltender in the National Hockey League among the very best. That's the main reason he's famous. But he's also famous, at least in Canada, for being a cocky and skillful talker of trash. In one famous incident, Waugh, a two-time Stanley Cup champion, responded to criticism from another championship-less player by saying, I couldn't hear him. My two Stanley Cup rings were stuck in my ears. <laughs> it was a cold and harsh rebuke, pretty brassy for us Canadians. It also, though, feels like this unwitting expression of the ways that our wealth our accomplishments might lessen our ability to hear and to respond. These huge chunks of precious jewel and metal stopping up Patrick Waugh's hearing. Both the disciples in our gospel reading and Samuel and Eli in the Old Testament text must be awakened, drawn out from their stupor in order to be made ready to participate, to respond to the leading, the, the word of the Lord. It seems to me that one of the gifts of a season, like the one we are in, one of the gifts of an invitation to generosity, to sacrificial giving, is that it draws us to consider our relationship with our money, with our wealth. And better yet, that it might draw us away from those things that might too easily keep us from hearing and attending to the voice of the Lord. It awakens us to a more intimate, powerful engagement with him. In contrast, the picture of Jesus in Luke 22 is one of earnest prayer, right? Anguished focus. He is fighting to say, here I am before the Father, whatever the cost. And out of his responsiveness, out of his availability, remarkable, lasting fruit is born. His availability is the seed of new creation. It leads to victory over sin, death, and hell, the redeeming of us, the redeeming of creation. Jesus refuses to be dissuaded. In the Gospel of Luke, he sets his face to Jerusalem, to the cross, and nothing distracts him from complete availability to the will of the Father. And we reap the benefit. To whom or to what are we most available? What might the fruit be of our availability to the Father and his purposes in this season and into the future. Who may reap the benefit? What fruit might God cultivate in the soil of our responsiveness to him? Robert Gordon was a famous Old Testament scholar at Cambridge who actually wrote a commentary on First and Second Samuel. But he was once asked about why it was that so many students in higher education of biblical studies seem to walk away from their faith or found their faith diminished in some way less fruitful. 
And Gordon responded to this question by saying, I suppose at one point or another, they simply stopped praying. He pointed to the ceasing of prayer, not to any of the challenging questions they might have confronted in their studies. At some point, he said, they ceased to say, here I am before God. And so for all the learning and knowledge and privilege, faith became lifeless and eventually incoherent, even to themselves. That seems like too simple of an answer, so it's probably right. A lack of availability before God corresponding with a dead and fruitless faith. If that relationship exists between diminished faith and fruitfulness and a lack of prayer, a lack of availability, I suspect that the corresponding but opposite relationship also exists. That our availability before God, our willingness to say, here I am, to present ourselves, the whole of our lives, all that we have, all that we are, and all that we will be, corresponds with fruitfulness in our lives and for the kingdom of heaven. Last week, Sarah Funderburg announced these two benchmark goals, $1.3 million raised over three years or $1.5 million raised over three years. And those goals are attached to very real needs and opportunities that we have as a community. But in a very real way, the future fruitfulness of this community is unrelated to the any amount of money given in and of itself. What will define the future fruitfulness of our community is our willingness to offer ourselves to say to God, here I am in prayer. And as we say, speak for your servant, your servants are listening. He who is called to his people from the very beginning, who still calls in the ordinary moments of our lives, will be faithful to do so. And by his power, our availability, like Christ's, whose sacrifice brought many sons and daughters to glory, or like Samuel, who was raised up as the greatest judge his people had ever known, or like Cecilia, whose very corpse, 1,300 years, 1,800 years later, still testifies to the resurrection and the power of God, will bear fruit, our availability, will bear fruit to the praise of his name and for the furthering of his mission among us. So this season, as we together pray, Heavenly Father, how are you inviting us to participate? May that prayer take on the meaning of Samuel's here I am as an expression of confidence, of trust, and of availability. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.